Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. In 2019, an important moment in world history took place when peak oil demand was passed, according to BP in their annual energy review. This meant that after that point in world history, the demand for hydrocarbons was gradually falling as a result of changes to do with adoption of renewable energy and other industrial developments. To help us to understand this transformation, I'm delighted to be joined today by Thijs van der Roof, who is an Associate Professor of International Politics at the University of Ghent and the author of a book entitled Global Energy Politics. Thijs, welcome. Thank you, Arthur. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, before we start, the first thing I should admit is I think that that issue of 2019 as a turning point is actually being questioned by some analysts now. Is that correct? Yes, you have that correctly. Um, in fact, BP has, has revised their forecast and it's still growing and will probably reach a peak uh, somewhere in the middle of this decade. And is this happening because of the adoption of renewable energy, electric vehicles, or are there other factors driving this? Well, as to the drivers for uh, peak oil demand, it has every much to do with, indeed, the energy transition. We see that oil consumption has already peaked in the United States, in Japan, in Europe. Uh, obviously, we've already kicked out oil mostly from the power sector. This is a change that has been in the making since the oil shocks of the 1970s. And now we see that demand for oil is also starting to level off for transportation. Uh, the, the remaining growth sectors basically for oil are now petrochemicals and aviation. At least that was the picture before the pandemic. Now we still have to see whether aviation can fully recover from that uh, major shock that the pandemic delivered. But we see that oil consumption is leveling off sector after sector and country after country. In fact, the remaining growth in oil consumption is hinging on just a shrinking set of countries. These are the emerging economies. Obviously, these are major players. But it's their enormous growth in oil consumption, which still leads oil demand to climb. If you look at it from the OECD, the Western developed economies, there you see that oil demand has already peaked. We have spent the last six months in Europe in particular in a kind of panic about uh, energy supplies. Uh, of course, European countries have been very reliant on gas from uh, Russia and, and oil as well, of course. Um, is the war in Ukraine going to change this story because perhaps uh, it will accelerate the need for renewables? Absolutely. Um, I think we have to look back at the oil shocks of the 1970s to understand what impact we may expect from this new geopolitical reality. Uh, what we saw in the 1970s was a short-term uh, reaction whereby coal use went up. But in the long term, this was one of the key elements that lowered our energy intensity uh, of our economic growth. That means that uh, we became much more efficient first fuel car efficiency standards in the United States date from the 1970s, and it's a lasting legacy. Um, secondly, we turn to nuclear. Uh, we saw a major nuclear ramp up in countries like France, Belgium, some others in response to that oil shock, uh, which is also a lasting legacy. 
Um, and finally, research into solar PV panels, into uh, wind turbines, etc. Uh, again, this laid the foundation to a major acceleration in renewables that we are seeing, especially over the last decade. So I think in the long run, the, the effects of, of that shock were positive. We could see the same pattern with the Russian energy shock, uh, if I may call it like that, of 2022. In the short run, some economies... Um, in developing Asia, but also in Europe, are turning to burning more coal. But in the long run, the pathway is clear. If, if Europe wants to decouple itself from Russian fossil fuels, it needs to fast track some of the climate measures that it was already planning to implement. Yeah. Now, you've talked there about the sort of practicalities of the change of the energy mix. But in a way that I know that a lot of your work Tis, has been more looking at the geopolitical aspects of this. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the big features of the energy crisis of 2022, Russia's war on Ukraine, is the way in which Russia at the moment, as a major exporter of hydrocarbons, can at least attempt to hold Europe to ransom. But of course, it, it, this is not just a story about Russia. There are quite a lot of negative dynamics in global geopolitics based around dependence on hydrocarbons. So what might be uh, some of the wider kind of geopolitical ramifications of this change, of of, uh, reduction in a reliance on hydrocarbon energy? Excellent question. Uh, And I think you are quite right to point out that Fossil fuels in general, but I would say oil in particular, has left a major, major imprint on the geopolitical map of the world. You cannot understand the distribution of wealth, power, the uh, incidence of conflict in world politics if you leave out the energy equation and especially the oil equation. I, I single out oil because if you look at the um, revenues that countries are accruing by selling energy abroad, oil is really the king. Now, if we succeed in moving towards a net zero economy, then we will have to become much more efficient. Then we will have to electrify lots of our energy uses, which are not currently electrified. And as a third step, we need to massively ramp up renewables And in fact, I would say we are already doing that. We sometimes talk about the energy transition as something that is happening in the future, but we are already in the midst of it. And then if you compare fossil fuels with renewables, we're going to enter a a completely different system. Fossil fuels, oil, gas, coal, these are concentrated stocks of energy. They are available only in specific geographic locations and not in others. Renewables, whether you talk about wind, solar, biomass, geothermal, hydro, ocean energy, you name it, they are much more dispersed. They are decentralized. Actually, they are available in one form or another in most countries. And they take the form of flows rather than stocks, wind, waters, uh, sun. Those are basically infinite flows of energy compared to the finite stocks of energy uh, which are stored uh, in in the soil in the form of fossil fuels. So it's a completely different system. So we should expect international relations, the distribution of power and wealth to completely change. And then obviously, if you talk about winners and losers, 
countries that are heavily reliant on export revenues from fossil fuels, they stand to to lose in terms of geopolitical leverage and influence. Whereas countries that are currently heavily reliant on uh, imports of fossil fuels, they stand to gain. But uh, the, the changes go even further. We might even see countries acquire technology leadership in those new renewable technologies and all the value chains accompanying it. We could see a, a diffusion of power to other actors than states because we tend to look at it, this from a state-centric perspective, but maybe the energy transformation will empower new actors such as citizens, cities and regions, which could find a new ability to generate their own energy, generate their own wealth or capture a share of the wealth. Uh, and so I, th- I think the, the impact on alliances, distribution of power, uh, on trade, on technology leadership, I think it's, it's going to be a system transformation rather than just a transition. One of the countries that comes to mind, perhaps at the top of the list, really, is Saudi Arabia. Now, as it happens, this is a little plug. Uh, in another podcast I'm involved with, Doomsday Watch, we, we did an episode looking at Saudi Arabia and we discussed, to some extent, the, the, the challenges with the Saudi model, which is completely reliant on uh, oil production. And although there have been attempts by the Saudis to... Uh, transform their economy, diversification, vision 2030. I think it's uh, it's pretty clear that those alternatives haven't really any chance of replacing uh, the, the, the oil industry in, in their economy. But my question for you is that for a country uh, that is completely reliant on one type of industry, the collapse of that industry will normally lead to conflict particularly a country that sees its power and influence declining often is a country that behaves in a way that is is destabilizing to its neighbors. So should we be expecting even more uh, instability in the Middle East region? A very good question and not an easy one uh, to answer, I must say. Um, When it comes to petrostates, I tend to make a distinction between, let's say, petrostates who are very rich in terms of GDP per capita, uh, like Saudi Arabia, which you mentioned, but also Kuwait, United Arab Emirates. And on the other hand, petrostates which are already poor, and some of which are already suffering from instability. Think about Venezuela, Libya, Angola, Chad. If you talk about the security implications, um, I'm particularly worried about that latter set of countries. I'm not so worried in the, in the sh- let's say, short-term, mid-term about um, political instability in, in, in Kuwait or in, in the United Arab Emirates, because these countries are so rich, they have accumulated a lot of foreign reserves, which they can deploy, um, you know, if oil prices uh, crash and they can survive on these reserves for a couple of years, they can borrow, they can start to gently introduce taxes like Saudi Arabia has done. Uh, Obviously, these are also sensitive moves to make in a country where the social contract has often been that the leadership is not democratic, is not accountable to its citizenry. But the citizenry, the citizens are kept happy through all sorts of gifts like free education, cheap energy, cheap housing, uh, lots of people working for the government sometimes in jobs which are just created to to give them an income. 
So obviously these social contracts might un start to unravel and that creates some tensions domestically, but I don't expect any revolution uh, shortly or uh, less so um, international repercussions. Except perhaps one instance, which is the U.S. military presence in the Persian Gulf. As you might know, the U.S. dominates the Persian Gulf militarily thanks to the presence of its fifth fleet in Bahrain. Uh, this has been so since the 1970s. The U.S. also abides by the Carter Doctrine, which says that any attempt from a foreign uh, country to try and dominate the Middle East will be met with a military response from the United States. But the U.S. is sort of turning its eyes away from the Middle East, more towards the Far East. I think this is due to the, the shale revolution, in part, which has uh, catapulted the United States to the world's number one oil and gas producer. But obviously, this leaves sort of a vacuum in the Middle East, which perhaps some Asian countries might also be worried about. So I think this, this is shifting already, but it's not necessarily the result of the energy transition. It's more the result of the shale revolution. Another aspect of this, who, who might be the winners from this transformation? Which are the countries that have the most to gain from the shift to a, a, a kind of renewable energy world? Well, potentially there are three sets of winners. Um, first, the group of countries which are, is, is currently heavily reliant on imported fossil fuels. These countries now pay a lot uh, to third countries for their energy supplies. In some cases, their foreign policy autonomy is constrained because they are dependent on their suppliers and this comes at a geopolitical cost. And to the extent that these countries can switch from imported fossil fuels to domestically generated low-carbon uh, energy sources, obviously their trade balances will improve, their foreign policy uh, autonomy might improve, and so they will end up in a, in a much better place. That's the first group. The second group is countries who succeed in gaining an edge in the technological arms race that we are seeing right now. And those countries getting a dominant position, obviously, they can reap enormous economic benefits in the future. Uh, and then the third set of countries, uh, but I, I say this with a, with a caveat, um, is countries which are rich in raw materials. Obviously, the renewable energy transition is going to be mineral and metal intensive. We will still need to dig stuff out of the ground. But instead of fossil fuels, we'll need other raw materials such as copper, lithium for batteries, cobalt also for, for batteries, uh, lots and lots of, of um, raw materials. And this could also mean that we see new countries gain economically from this um, mining boom that we are anticipating. But the caveat, of course, is that they will only benefit if they succeed in managing those revenues. We saw with uh, fossil fuels that some fossil fuel exporting countries remained uh, underdeveloped in spite of their fossil fuel wealth, and they weren't able to translate that um, mineral wealth into flourishing economy, with uh, domestic stability, with a democratic political system. Um, so we'll need to see whether, you know, that, that phenomenon of a resource curse also applies to, that, to those new sets of minerals. 
And some of those countries with the raw materials wealth are, of course, countries that already had the, the hydrocarbon resources. And I'm thinking particularly of Russia. It seems to me that in this transformation, whilst uh, there are countries, for example, you know, you've, you've looked at the case studies of Libya and Iraq, for example, that, that probably uh, have a lot to lose. It seems possible that Russia has quite a lot to gain both because of its climate, uh, basically a fairly cold country, but also because of its huge uh, natural resources beyond just oil and gas. So is the kind of expectation that Russia loses some of its power and influence probably an over-optimistic expectation? I think before the outbreak of the recent war um, between Russia and Ukraine, Russia was actually in a pretty good position because just like countries like Saudi Arabia, it can produce oil and gas at very low costs. So if you look at global demand for oil and gas and you, you anticipate that that demand will hit a ceiling and then starts to level off uh, or even in some scenarios fall off a cliff, then obviously the producers that will be the last men standing will be the producers with low costs. And next to Saudi Arabia, I think Russia is one of those. So it could have even gained market share in such a scenario in the coming years and decades. The war has changed everything. Europe is now decoupling from Russia, um, from its fossil fuels, because of Russia's choice to invade uh, Ukraine. I think if there would be a ceasefire or a peace agreement tomorrow, or even if there would be a palace coup in Moscow tomorrow and, and Putin is overthrown, I think uh, Europe will still diversify away from Russia for many years to come. Uh, again, the an analogy with the 1970 oil shock is, is, is pertinent because even though the, the oil embargo was not put in place in 1973 by OPEC as an organization, but only by some Arab member countries of OPEC. If you look at the market share of OPEC today in global oil supplies, it still is lower than in 1973. So what countries have done, importing countries, is they have diversified away. New exporters have emerged. And so OPEC's market share has, uh, has shrunk. I think we'll see the same for Russia. Russia has basically ensured that its status as, as, as a major energy exporter, that, that status is now completely eroded. And I think Russia will, will lose its, its uh, dominant position in those markets, regardless, as I said, of, of what will happen uh, tomorrow or next month. I think this is a structural uh, trend that will, has now been set in motion thanks to Russia's own actions. Well, that final point seems like a perfect place to conclude this discussion. Thijs van der Graaf, thank you for helping us and our listeners understand this hugely important transformation, which is just beginning in our own lifetimes. Thank you. You're welcome, and thanks for having me. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. 
Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was presented by Arthur Snell. Audio productions from me, Robin Lieburn, and the producers of Jelena Sofronevich and Jacob Archer, with assistant production from Kasia Tomaszewicz. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.